0: Somebody must know
1: something out there. More than one person will know who it was.
0: It's somebody we know, for sure. I reckon she knew her killer. I really do, babe.
2: This is the third episode of Annette, a four-part series exploring the mysterious death of Annette Deverell, a 19-year-old girl from a small Australian town. It's a 40-year-old cold case that is yet to be solved. My name's Carla Hildebrandt. I'm a journalist at the Mandurah Mail in Western Australia. In this episode, we speak with former police detective Bruce Scott, who worked in the region where Annette lived and later assisted with her case. He provides a valuable insight into crime in Mandra in the lead-up to Annette's disappearance. He shares the day-to-day struggles of working in a team of just two detectives responsible for solving the entire region's most serious crimes. We also break down the murder investigation from the night Annette disappeared in 1980 to a review of the case in 1999 and hear from former Mandra detective Jeff Beeman. Jeff shares the frustrating fight he faced with WA police when reviewing Annette's murder and why he believes the case has never been solved, from a questionable police culture to an unorthodox file management system and a high-profile series of murders in the western suburbs of the capital, Perth, which demanded an enormous amount of police attention. We also speak with some of Annette's friends who were interviewed by police at the time of her disappearance and reveal a crucial piece of evidence that could still be tested for a possible killer's DNA. When Annette disappeared in 1980, policing was a lot different. There were significantly fewer officers for a start and they didn't have the sophisticated equipment, computers and other technology available to today's investigators – Instead, they carried batons and guns and recorded their notes by hand in journals. Most police were male, while the few female officers wore skirts and carried their gun in a handbag. In the years before Annette's death, Bruce Scott and his detective partner Derek Farrell worked in the neighbouring seaside town of Rockingham. Like Mandra, it's since been swallowed by Perth's urban sprawl. The pair investigated serious crime in an area stretching almost 1,500 square kilometres. Bruce recalls it as the busiest criminal investigations branch in the state. These days, more than 40 detectives cover that same region. An experienced cop when he arrived in the Manja region in 1970, Bruce had joined the police straight out of school in 1953. While he didn't work on Annette's case, having left the region for Perth four years before her disappearance, he paints a grim picture of the sorts of crimes the areas under-resourced detectives dealt with at the time.
3: It just snowballed. It was unbelievable. The murder inquiries, we had quite a few big ones. but The sex crimes, they're just coming out of the woodwork all over the place. Mm. Uh, we had rapes and incests. We had more charges going through the court than the rest of the state in the Supreme Court and District Court. It was unbelievable.
2: Bruce says he was often in trouble with his bosses because of the overtime he racked up, but he felt he had no other option if he was to do his job properly.
3: I answered the phone and... It was one of the bosses in person. he said, Oh, Bruce, I'm just looking at the overtime for you blokes. He said, This is unbelievable. We can't afford this. You know, you're going to have to cut the overtime out. Tell me what I've got to do. And he said, Oh, well, you just can't work it. And I said, Well, who's going to work it then? And he said, Well, what are you doing at the office at the moment? I said, Actually, I'm stood in my jammies here now, and you've got me in a house. Oh, he said, I didn't realise. And I said, Well... Every call we get, they phoned us at home. The police put the phone through to my house because of only two detectives for the whole area. Mm. Oh, he said, no. <laughs> but we had more overtime than anyone else.
2: It's telling that when Annette disappeared from Mandra, there wasn't a single detective based in the town. This meant that the missing person's investigation was led by a detective based at Midland, about 90 kilometres north. Barry Rowlandson was his name. Barry was a detective senior sergeant running a busy office. He led the investigation when Annette went missing in 1980 and again when her remains were found in 1982. Many officers who worked on the case in the 1980s have since died like Inspector Mick Mulvey, who coordinated a search for Annette's body, and Chief Superintendent Jim Kirkman, and Acting Superintendent Lee Walker, who assisted with the investigation after her remains were found. Lead Detective Barry Rowlandson died last year at the age of 81 after battling prostate cancer, His wife, Cynthia, says Barry always kept his work and family life separate, so she doesn't know much about the case of Annette Deverell. But she remembers that police resourcing was a source of stress for her husband.
0: There were hard days for the men. You know, they worked long hours and sometimes they didn't have their time off from the job. Barry worked a lot, uh, days, you know, at the job. He filled in and staffing was hard. Uh, He used to go to Manjura quite a lot. He'd either get a lead or something and follow it up. If he had a lead, he would follow it up. He uh, knew the law and he researched it and researched it and went back on it, slept on it, and then went back and did it again in the morning.
2: Former Mandra detective Jeff Beeman, who reviewed Annette's disappearance and death in 1999, knew Barry well.
1: I wasn't interested in being a detective for I met folks like Barry Rollins and I found him to be a, absolutely a great mind. You know, he's like a hero to a lot of people because he was such a good man, you know, and very astute.
2: When Jeff discussed the Annette case with Barry in 1999, Barry recounted the initial investigation and the challenges he'd faced two decades earlier.
1: And he was told to come down here and look into this missing person, Janet Deville. So he interviewed people and he did what they call now the full victimology on it. And, and I read, I've read his report and it was pretty thorough. And he said straight away there's something, this needs more investigation. It's obviously something sinister happened. The organisation at the time wasn't too rushed to doing these sort of things, Got it creates work. So they just said leave it as a missing person and uh, we'll keep, keep a watching brief on it the way that the police department acted in those days. When someone was missing until so the body was found or something definite come up, they, never, they just left it as a missing person. So, you know, when you get something like this happening, it, there's nobody going to do it. They didn't have a major crime squad, didn't have a homicide squad, hence they get a bloke like Barry Rowlandson's ability to come down here and he virtually did it by himself. The missing persons thing that established there's a problem.
2: But Barry knew Annette wasn't simply missing. Like Annette's family and friends, he was convinced she hadn't run away from home. Barry knew something dreadful had happened, Jeff Beeman says.
1: And it was different. She was a homely sort of person. This is her life, this is all her friends, and she wouldn't do that. But they just said, well, at this stage, the a missing person. Until something else comes up, we just have a watching brief on her. Barry Rollins was quite taken back. I could see, you know, he, he put it all together and said, more, this is something sinister's happening, this more investigation should be done, and they just didn't do it.
2: With no further investigation conducted after Annette disappeared, Jeff says Barry faced a major challenge when Annette's remains were eventually found almost two years later, in July 1982, in Bush, 30 minutes drive from where she was last seen.
1: Then the remains turned up and then they did an investigation. And of course the trail's cold, you know. And that's two years later. You know, he said it'd be good to solve it, he says, because, you know, it's, you know, it's one of those things that stick to investigator's mind, they couldn't solve something.
2: Jeff says he can't fault the officers who had to prioritise their work in 1980 and who didn't have the resources to do anything more than treat Annette as a missing persons case.
1: Yeah, there was a few unsolved murders at that time. You know, Barry Rollison, was, you wouldn't get a better detective of Him him. You've got Vince Cadiches, he was a very good detective. He, he did the uh, Bernies, you know. But in the end, so much work coming in. They just haven't got time to, well, if they don't give you resources, you can't run around by yourself. And that's virtually what I did here. I was running around by myself and I was getting limited resources because it was pumped into other areas. This was old, this was finished. You know what I mean?
2: As well as a lack of backup on the case, Jeff says Barry Rowlandson also had trouble getting some of Annette's acquaintances to open up.
1: A lot of them were in and out of trouble, dope smokers and all that sort of stuff. That was a sort of culture. You were trying to do an investigation, they were they weren't cooperative police and all a lot of these people. You know, in those days.
2: The friends of Annette we have spoken to say they were cooperative with police after Annette vanished. And some, like Trevor Hewitt, remember being surprised when the initial police investigation into her disappearance ended pretty abruptly.
4: The way the police didn't pursue it, now whether I'm not seeing something that they'd done behind the scenes, but it just seemed to fizzle out really quick.
2: Annette's mother Margaret says she too thought the investigation felt unfinished.
0: They been interviewing everybody for every day for about three weeks and then it gradually, I think they ran out of whatever leads they were trying to find, they slowly ran out and got less and less involvement with them.
2: Annette's friend Barbara Kalisia remembers feeling confused during her interview as police floated ideas about what could have happened to the missing teenager.
0: The came round to my house too and said, we know you, you know where Annette is. I said, I don't know where Annette is. I said, well, I don't know where Annette is. He said, you're hiding her. I said, "What would I be hiding her from? Then they left, it, left me alone anyway. I think they were just questioning everybody and trying to push them, I don't know. But, like, for them to say that, I thought, why would Annette run away? Like, her life was great with a mum and that, you know? There was no reason for her to run.
2: About a month after Annette's disappearance, her school friend Steve Anderson remembers being questioned by detectives with schoolmate Trevor Hewitt. They got the impression that police believed something sinister had happened.
0: Yeah, everyone was getting interviewed. It went on for a week or more. Just got called in. And it was just repeating on, who do I think done it? It was never like, Mm. did you do it? It was all, who do I think done it? Who do I think done it? It was all over in 15 minutes, the the police interview. It wasn't a big scrutiny, you're the bad guy, try to break you or anything. It was, we
4: weren't hunted down or anything. It was a mystery to us as well.
2: Trevor Hewitt has a similar recollection.
4: She'd gone missing by that time, for that long. Annette and her mum were pretty close, you know, it just... Didn't mesh. And we were a fair way down, it was probably a month or something like that later, maybe. They were just starting to ask people, who do you think it was? That's really all they were asking us. Where were you that night and who do you think it was? Yeah, and we put forward a few people that were around at the time that were being a bit weird.
2: But Trevor wasn't interviewed after Annette's remains were found, which he says was a little strange. He says the investigation, in his words, fizzled out too quickly. What about after her remains were
4: found? No, it's a bit surprising. Yeah, never got interviewed again, but I was probably wasn't full of all their information they might have wanted to know. We were just local guys in town. We all knew her. We all knew everyone in town. Could have been things behind the scenes I didn't see, but I thought it just went off too quiet. You know, like they sort of got to a point where they think they knew who it was.
2: Trevor says there was a rumour in town that police had identified a local person as a suspect but the suspect had an alibi for the night Annette disappeared.
4: It could be made up by people, but everyone was pretty close back then. Every, you know, whatever went down around the place, most people got wind of it. That's the last thing we heard about it. And all of us still talk about it all the time. That's never been revised, it's never been really much more. From what I know, there's no pressure being put on anyone. Maybe they're, they're just waiting for them to trip themselves up, but I thought it was a bit odd that we all didn't have more questioning especially the people that were in town on the night.
2: Annette's friend John McCarthy remembers that when he was interviewed by police after Annette's remains were found in 1982, a gun was propped against a wall in the interview room.
3: When we went in the police station, there was a, a burnt-out remnants of a gun against the, the wall of the police station. I didn't know whether that was to try and shock me or shock other people that, that interview. I just said to him, is that the gun they found? And, and he sort of didn't worry about it, so I don't know whether they had it set up for people going into a cold sweat when they saw the gun or something, I don't know.
2: Many questions remain unanswered about the weapon. Who owned it? How did it end up near her remains? Was it used to threaten or kill Annette? Did it cause the fracture to her skull? Trevor Hewitt said it was common for people in Mandra to own guns in the 1970s and 80s. The town was surrounded by bush and shooting on the weekend was a popular pastime.
4: I've still got mine. Yeah, pretty common. Um, i got a gun licence at 16. It's very uncommon not to. Some didn't, but all of our group, nearly every one of us that I knocked around with, yeah. Yeah, we all had guns, we all go, you know, we'd go. we go away and sh- pig hunting up in the hills here, but we'd also go to Lanceland and clean up rabbits on farmers' properties that had problems and that. Everyone, and some were unlicensed, some were old ones off farms.
2: The investigation into the mysterious death of Annette Deverell eventually petered out, just as it had done after she disappeared. The police interviews stopped and the clue trail went cold. Life continued in sleepy Mandra, but not for Annette's family. 15 years later, a new detective in Mandra, Sergeant Jeff Beeman, decided to review old unsolved cases. Leading a team of four detectives, Jeff, who's now retired, says WA police realised the need for intelligence-led policing instead of a scattergun approach.
1: We had an intelligence officer. He was collating information. The computer age was coming up. Things were getting computerised more, storing data. It became very effective.
2: Jeff was up against lost time reviewing Annette's case, but was confident after helping to put the killer of local pensioner Hilda Fry behind bars for life. He'd previously helped nail the killer of Kalgoorlie man Gavin Stubbs. If anyone was capable of solving Annette's case, it was Jeff Beeman.
1: What happens, your ego gets you, or your, what do you can call it ego, whatever you want. But And then I saw the Annette Devil one, I thought, you know, the, the, these people, the, the murderers are still living in the community. Their lifestyle changes. And the old cliché is people's loyalties change. So if somebody did something five years beforehand, they were different people. They probably got out of that circle of bad people and drugs and all that sort of stuff, so the next minute people are talking. They were too scared to talk then. Every crime solved, really.
2: Around this time, WA police were focused on catching the high-profile Claremont serial killer who was stalking the suburbs of Perth and murdering young women. A special task force was formed. This meant Jeff, like his counterparts 20 years earlier, didn't have the manpower needed to solve Annette's case.
1: Well, the struggle is is resourcing because, honestly, they, they had a major investigation going in Perth and they couldn't afford the resources to do anything more. I accept that fact, you know. And my people at Mandra were tied up with just general day crime. You know, you've got four detectives covering a big district. It was very difficult. So, really, you do, you're running a bit lone wolf and you're trying to dig, and you just, a bit and pieces were coming. Yeah, you know, it was in the media, and next minute, people were ringing you up.
2: A key clue uncovered in Jeff Beeman's review of the case was the apparent sighting of Annette in a dark coloured panel van on the night she disappeared. There were at least two other people in the vehicle. Jeff says the woman who called him to report what she saw described the panel van as a 1970s model, possibly a Holden, that was in good condition with chrome wheels. If this sighting's correct, this would be the last time Annette was ever seen alive. The woman told Jeff that she saw Annette yell out and wave to her from the car, but she didn't look her happy normal self.
1: There's evidence the last time she was seen was in this back of the panel van, and that was driving... Pinjarret Road doing one of the little bog laps, and she was in the back. A friend said they saw her, and they said she had a worried look about her, sitting in the back of that panel van, and then she wasn't seen again.
2: If this sighting's correct, then Jeff believes there are at least two people who know what happened to Annette that Saturday night, if not more.
1: If she was last seen in a panel van, if that's act factual, she's never seen since, there'd be more than one person in that panel van. There's likely to be a couple of people involved.
2: We've not been able to track down this key witness to recount her sighting of the panel van. We'd like to speak to her and encourage her to get in touch with us by emailing annettpodcast at gmail.com. Detective Jeff Beeman says the woman told him she was 16 when she originally told police about seeing the panel van soon after Annette had disappeared in 1980. He thought he might find a record of her statement in the old occurrence books where officers would record daily jobs and events in chronological order before computers were introduced. He'd hoped the books would contain other leads police had followed up directly after Annette vanished. But he was out of luck.
1: Guess what? They're all up to the month after Annette disappeared. Obviously somebody disposed of old books. People go, we don't need them anymore and they'd send them off somewhere and they'd just burn them. There was no need to keep them. And that's the problem. There, was, there wasn't a lot of management of old files and old books. That was a problem in those days.
2: With no occurrence books from the period, Jeff can't also be sure that police followed up on reports of a woman's scream in Bush near Annette's home on the night she disappeared. Jeff says during his 1999 review of the case, he received a phone call from a neighbour who had lived in the same street as Annette's family in 1980.
1: And this woman told us that she heard this horrible scream come from a bush area.
2: We will never know how many other tip-offs from the community have been lost or missed between Annette's disappearance and Jeff Beeman's review of the case in 1999. When this Annette podcast spoke to Annette's friends, asking for any clues or bits of information that might help police even all these years later, one interview yielded a startling revelation... Sandy McMahon, who didn't go to school with Annette, but met through mutual friends, says she found a bloodstained towel with human hair on it near Annette's home two days after her disappearance. Sandy and two friends went looking in the bush near where Annette lived. They weren't sure what they were looking for, but they knew Annette would have had to walk through the area if she had walked home that evening. Annette's friend Trevor Hewitt says the bush was unavoidable along her walk home.
4: And it would have had to walk through down Boundary Road and through the bush a bit to get home. It was certainly a quiet walk and a bit of bushland and not many houses.
2: Sandy recalls her own search for Annette. Yeah,
5: we sort of walked around in the bush and just had that feeling between all of us because it was very unlike her. Too, was quite close to her family and mum and that. We found a blood-stained towel. It was a beach towel, and it was in the boot of my car for a couple of days and. We mentioned it to the police because we were all interviewed. They sort of laughed it off as if nothing. But my uncle was a policeman at the time and he came down about three or four weeks later and I said, you know, it was a big talk around town that she disappeared and rah-rah. I said, well, we weren't actually looking for her, Uncle Kev, up in the bush. Yeah, we found this towel and he says, oh, what did it look like? And I said, what's happened? It's still in my boot. So he actually took it and it was human hair and blood. I don't know whatever went on from that. He took it up to Perth and dropped it forensics. And the next time I said, "You know what was that?" And he says, "It was just human blood and hair."
2: Annette's mother Margaret says she was shown the towel by police and asked if it had belonged to her.
0: They brought it to show me to see if it was one of my towels. It was a blood-stained towel. It was handed in to the police. They brought it to me to see if it was. I recognised it for one of my towels, but it wasn't our towels, so I don't know whose it was.
2: So a bloodstained towel with traces of human hair was found close to Annette's home days after her disappearance, and a loud scream was heard by Annette's neighbour on the night she vanished. Were these clues to Annette's fate? Jeff Beeman says he wasn't made aware of the bloodstained towel when he reviewed the case in 1999, He says the police file consisted of running sheets and statements, but he couldn't recall there being an exhibit log. That's not to say there wasn't one. Unfortunately, Jeff couldn't shed light on another mystery of the case, Annette's bag. A month after Annette's remains were found, her black handbag was found roughly two kilometers away. Margaret says the bag was in perfect condition, despite supposedly being out in the bush for nearly two years.
0: They wouldn't tell me where they found her handbag or anything, so I don't know. Still had all that stuff in it, a brush and everything. If it had been out in the weather for two years, it would have deteriorated somewhat. I just said, well, where did you find it? But they can't tell you everything.
2: And there was a bushfire that went through that area. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you'd think if a bag was with her, it would have been burnt.
2: News reports say that between 1980, when Annette vanished, and 1982, when her remains were found, there was a bushfire in the area. Investigators said the fire wasn't deliberately lit, and the autopsy confirmed that Annette's body wasn't burnt after she died. A WA police force spokesperson told the Annette podcast the bloodstained towel, jewellery and bag were still held in storage. Could the towel still hold traces of DNA and more clues for police to follow? Asked if the evidence, including the towel and bag, had the potential to be tested for DNA, the police spokesperson said advances in forensic science certainly can provide new investigative opportunities. Retired Mandra detective Jeff Beeman says he couldn't rule out the possibility that Annette fell victim to a serial killer who might have also been responsible for three other unsolved disappearances and deaths around that time in regional Western Australia. Police believe 12-year-old Lisa Mott was abducted from the main street of the inland town Collie, 90 minutes southeast of Mandra. Lisa went missing about a month after Annette disappeared. She was last seen speaking to a person in a yellow panel van. Karen Tate was 22 when she went missing from Perth in December 1979, one year before Annette went missing. Her remains were later found burnt on a tree stump in Boulder Rock, inland south of the state capital. 19-year-old girl Felicia Wilson was attacked and murdered in broad daylight in a park on her walk home from work in Konana in January 1979. Her head was crushed by a boulder. Quinana is only a 30-minute drive north of Mandra. Could these young women have been murdered by the same person? Jeff Beeman says he got in trouble for mentioning the possibility.
1: And as soon as I just happened to say, or as a passing comment, look, there were several unsolved murders, they could be linked. And that's when I got in trouble. They say it causes public fear. That there's a serial, another serial killer, maybe, you know?
2: Several of Annette's friends say serial killers David and Catherine Burney could be responsible for the death of Annette Deverell and the abduction of Lisa Mott. The infamous Perth couple murdered and raped four young women in 1986, six years after Annette disappeared. Jeff says David Burney owned a yellow panel van and worked in the Collie area around the time of both disappearances, but David Burney denied any involvement in Lisa Mott's murder. He committed suicide in jail in 2005. Catherine Burney is serving a life term in bandy up women's prison. We wrote to her earlier in 2019 to ask if she knew anything, but there's been no reply. Jeff Beeman says he doesn't believe there was a link between Annette's murder and the Burneys. I've
1: got a feeling after the Lisa Mott business, the panel van was talking to me, yellow panel, the last time speaking to someone, a yellow panel, and then this one came, and I don't think people tried to link it. There was some talk to Burnies, actually somebody said I think the Burnies did that. David Burnie used to live in Collie and he used to drive through Mandurah. Burnies really confessed to everything. They said he only confessed to things that he was with his wife with, he didn't confess he might have done with someone else. There's no evidence that Burnies were here, no, no.
2: Jeff Beeman reviewed the Annette-Deverell case files for about six months in 1999, among other cases and daily police work. He desperately wanted to solve the mystery, but he didn't get the backing he hoped for from the force and was even told to pull back to avoid stepping on the toes of other officers.
1: Now, these things have got to be done properly. And I was told later in my career, one of the reasons I, I, I pulled out of the detectives is uh, you know, somebody, you know, a senior, very senior person in the police force said, you know, he dressed us at a training course and he tried to say, you know, you've just got to saturate it for, for 28 days and then... Put it to bed. I couldn't believe I heard it. And I was even said to me, you know, because what happens when you review something and you them, get their nose out of the joint because they couldn't do it. So it's jealousy, professional jealousy to some degree. And so I was even approached by someone who said to me once, you know, he says, Jeff, when said, but things are written off, they're written off. And like, I just shook my head. I couldn't believe the person said it to me, you know, and I go, you know, I was obviously trying to say, look, you've got to stop doing this. That's how frustrating it can be. I firmly believe it's changed dramatically, and they've got a very good team doing these cold case reviews, and they have some very good success in recent times. Mm. But the, I'm talking about an era when it was it was different. But I might feel it now that I had not I feel that you know you think, gee, wish I could have got that further, you know, and kept at it. But I just couldn't. It was getting too hard, you know. And, and you're clashing with people you shouldn't be clashing with. And uh, I knew my me, me days were numbered as a detective because. You clash with people that were really the they were supposed to be the go-to people.
2: Finally, Jeff pulled back from his review of the Annette Deverell evidence, and the case went cold for a third time. Annette's mother, Margaret Carver, says the last police officer she spoke to about her daughter was Jeff Beeman in 1999. Thank you for listening to episode three of Annette. In the next episode, the Annette podcast speaks with WA Cold Case Homicide Squad Officer in Charge, Tony Rosenberg, about Annette's case as it stands today.
4: We just want to give the family some peace of mind and some answers to know what happened to Annette.
2: Retired Detective Jeff Beeman calls on anyone who knows something, no matter how significant, to come forward.
1: I don't know how people can sit there and not do anything. They should have a reality check and go, I should go and tell them.
2: And Margaret Carver shares her final plea for answers.
0: If anyone knew anything, I'd be grateful they'd come forward and said something. I don't want to go to my grave not knowing that it was never ever solved.
2: We hope this series will spark someone's memory or encourage witnesses with crucial information to finally come forward about what really happened that Saturday night in 1980 in the town of Mandra. If you have any information that could help police solve this case, contact Crimestoppers on 1800 333 000. You can contact me, Carla Hildebrandt, by emailing annettpodcast at gmail.com and you can remain anonymous if you wish.